North Shore Church audio podcast. To find out more information about North Shore Church, please visit us at mynsag.com. We hope you enjoy today's message. If you're ready, well, this morning we're starting a new series called Do Hard Things. I hope you guys are doing good today. It is so good to see you. I want to take an opportunity right now to welcome all of our guests. If this is your first time, thank you for being here with us today. We love, love, love that you are here. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 25. We're going to get there in just a second. But, but we are starting this series, Do Hard Things. And before we get into the message this morning, I think it's important for us to make a distinction between hard things and difficult things. Because sometimes the hard things and the difficult things are different. And hard things aren't always difficult things. Let me explain. <clears throat> Last year, um, when we were skiing, uh, there, it, was, it was just a, a great time we had with family and friends. And, and the, the runs that, that we were going down were the greens. And, you know, my kids are little and we're going down the green runs. And those are the easiest ones. But, but the really cool thing about this particular year is that that day, the, the two days that we were there, um, there was a high school ski meet, or I don't even know what you call it. What, what would you like a ski races, something like that? And um, so the, the lodge was full of all of these high school kids and all their gear and stuff. And the really cool thing was that the ski lift, as we were going back up the mountain to go down our green runs, was right over the black hill that they were all racing down. And so um, all day we were going up the lifts and we were watching these kids go in between the, the you know, the sticks. I, I, I'm using real technical terms here. These are the appropriate. They were going through the things, and um, we were watching. And, and you could tell, like, the level of skill of, of these kids. And they were going down this black hill through their, the, through their stuff. And at the beginning of the day, you could tell it was like the freshman team and the JV team because they, they'd come over the, the crest of the hill, and they'd come down, and they were, like, really timid, real sloppy and slow, and they were like coming to a stop so that they could turn around their, their poles and stuff like that. And then later in the day, you could tell like it was the better kids. They were the seniors, the varsity kids, because, man, they were screaming down. And, and I remember as we're going up the hill, talking to my kids about, about these JV team and, um, you know, just kind of critiquing their style a little bit and, and telling my kids, you know, they just need to go for it. The hill's not that steep. They're not going to get hurt. They need to have confidence and they, they just need to let loose and, and go. And, and it was just really fun to watch. And so before the day ended, their meet was over and they had all gone home and, um, and, you know, I'd been going down the green runs all day with my kids and I don't like to brag, but I was killing the green runs. Let me tell you, I was I was nailing them, man. I didn't fall once. I was getting it. And um, so feeling pretty good. And, and even watching some of those JV kids, man, in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, I, I'm pretty athletic. I can, I can do this stuff. I know how to ski, you know. And, and thinking that, you know, I, I could probably just show up, throw one of those costumes on. That shows you how, like, good I am. I'm not calling it a uniform. I'm calling it a costume. Um, throwing one of those costumes on and going down there and placing. I just was confident that I could. And so... Towards the end of the day, I, I told the kids, you guys go ahead and go down the green. You, you guys are fine enough to go by yourselves. I'm going to go down this, this black that all these high school kids were on. And I was a little bummed that they had taken their poles off and because I wanted to, you know, go in between them. So I thought, you know, I'll just kind of pretend, you know, there, there they are and, and, you know, make it up as I'm going. Well, I get to the hill, and, and I kid you not, something changed. Something happened. The hill literally changed from not that steep to 
I'm glad I've got my will updated, Steve. And so, so my, my goal was changed. Uh, I, I absolutely abandoned my plan to go down the high school path, which was on the steep side of the hill. And, and now my goal is to just simply survive, okay? I just, I just want to make it down the hill in one piece. I want to survive. And so I get started down the hill. And, and um, you know, I can stop myself, but when it's steep, it's kind of hard to stop yourself. And you know it's bad when you start speaking to yourself out loud, Right? So I'm going down this, this, this hill skiing, and, and I start going faster, and my, my, I'm you know, kind of thing, trying to stop. And I hear myself going, oh, no. And, and I'm saying this, yikes. And, and I'm talking to myself, and, and I hit this one point in the hill where I had two options. I could either keep going and know I would eventually crash forward and roll into one of those snowballs that get bigger and bigger and bigger down the hill like on the cartoons, or I could just kind of bail and lay down and ride it out. And so, uh, I mean, just fear overwhelming me, and I'm going, ah, and, and, and so I just laid down, and, and I'm, I'm sliding down my back on this black hill, just sliding down. Uh, simultaneously, snow was shooting up my back and down my pants at the same time. I didn't know that that worked that way, but it happened, and, and I'm, I'm sliding down this hill, and I felt like, man, I'm sliding for a long time, thinking, okay, I'm going to eventually stop, and I'm still sliding down the hill. I go, okay, I'm going to stop, and I'm still sliding down the hill, because I'm all kind of balled up, you know, and so, and so nothing would stop me, and eventually, I just laid my skis out and laid out like this, and I eventually turned upside down and slid to a stop, and it was funny, because I slid to a stop right next to three middle-aged morons that were going down this same hill trying to prove that they were as good as those junior high kids like me. And so we're all kind of there. They're looking at me, scared to death. I'm looking at them, happy to be alive. And they say, hey, man, you okay? I said, yeah, I'm okay. And he said, those kids make it look easy, don't they? <laughs> yeah, they do. They do. It's a little harder than I thought. You see, this hill... I thought it would be easy, but, it, it, but this one had a high degree of difficulty. It, it was difficult. It took a certain level of skill, of practice, of time, of expertise to be able to make it down this hill, and I certainly didn't have it. But in this series, I don't want us to worry about difficult things. We're not talking about difficult things, things that take a certain level of skill or, or training or ability. As followers of Christ, the reality is there will be some of us that are called to do difficult things, but every single one of us are called to do hard things. Let me say that again. As believers, as Christians, every single one of us are called to do difficult things. Or, ugh, I messed it up. It's like I'm going down a black hill again. Not all of us, some of us will be called to do difficult things, but every single one of us are called to do hard things. And what I've discovered is that oftentimes the simple things can be the hardest to do. Have you ever found this to be true in your life? The simple things can be the hardest to do. One more time, I want to welcome all of our guests. Thank you guys for being here on this Friends Sunday. We want you guys to enjoy the, the root beer floats. I know that some of you have already done that. Thank you for being here with us. And the reality is, as silly as it sounds, it can be hard to invite somebody to church. Do you know this to be true? Yes? It can be hard to invite someone to church. It's not difficult. 
It's not difficult to send a text. It's not difficult to have a conversation. It's not difficult to dial a phone number. But it can be extremely hard. Why? Because you, 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 know, you, you bring them and, and you hope that they have a good experience. You hope that um, nothing weird happens. You hope that they, you don't get sat next to somebody that smells funny. You know what I mean? It can be hard inviting somebody to church. You, you, you're hoping that, you know, Pastor Chris doesn't embarrass you up there. You know, it, it can be hard inviting somebody to church. And so for those of you who brought a friend with you today, thank you because you're already doing hard things. And so the message that I want to share with you specifically today is from Matthew 25. Many of you are already there. If you don't have a Bible, uh, the scripture will be on the screen. And in this, I believe that Jesus identifies something that isn't overly difficult, but it can be extremely hard for us. He tells this parable in Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 1. This is what he says. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten bridesmaids who took their lamps and went, in, went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The five who were foolish didn't take enough olive oil for their lamps, but the other five were wise enough to take along extra oil. When the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. Some of you know this story, some of you don't. And so to, to make sure that we're all on the same page, let me give a little uh, cultural context here to help us understand this picture a little bit better. In that day, weddings were like they are today, uh, very lavish and extravagant celebrations. There were many guests, there were lots of food. Um, this was a long celebration. In fact, in that day, they were probably a little bit uh, more of a bigger deal than what they are even today. And one of the things that, that was always true is that the celebration wouldn't begin until everything was ready. They wouldn't just start. They had to wait until absolutely everything was ready to go. And so what that meant is that sometimes the guests would arrive and they would have to wait. Sometimes they would wait a little while. Sometimes they would wait a long time. But, but nothing would start until absolutely everything was ready. So sometimes those guests would just have to wait for quite some time. Often the reason for the delay was, was that there would be last-minute negotiations between the groom and the in-laws about the terms of the marriage and kind of how those deals were done. Finally, when everything was set, the groom would come to the bride's home and the, the crier would announce the bridegroom coming and the celebration would commence. And so in this story of the bridesmaids, the ten bridesmaids, the five foolish ones and the five wise ones, the original hearers of this parable would have understood that these ten women, these ten bridesmaids, some of your translations say these ten virgins, these, these ten women that were a part of the celebration there, they had a special, a special and specific part to play in this wedding celebration. Some suggest that, that maybe they were uh, prepared to do some sort of a special dance with flaming torches, but, but most agree that their job, the job of these women, was to lead the wedding procession into the celebration and then while there, allow their lamps that they're carrying to provide much-needed light for the celebration that was going to go on well into the night, if not a couple of days. And um, so nothing about their job was overly difficult. Does that make sense? Now, nothing, was, now, nothing required a specific skill set or a specific talent. Nothing was overly difficult. And so in this story, for whatever reason, the groom was delayed. 
We don't know why. It doesn't matter. Perhaps the groom was uh, waiting for the bride. Maybe the bride was taking a little bit longer than expected to get ready, to, to, to make herself ready. And, and let me just say this, to, to point to larger gospel implications in, in Scripture, because because what I want you to know, especially if this is your first time, whenever you read the Bible, there is a gospel message through every single verse of every single book of every single you know, page on your scripture. It all points to the gospel. And there's larger gospel implications in this picture of the ten bridesmaids and the groom coming. Because the Bible often refers to the church as the bride of Christ. Listen, this is such an important application because it, it speaks of a, a, a relationship that is eternal and everlasting. And, and I love this song that we just sang a few moments ago, this Even So Come, where, where we declared, like a bride waiting for her groom. This is a very biblical song that we're singing. This is, this is very theologically sound because Scripture often refers to the church as the bride of Christ. And, and in the end of time, this is going to culminate in the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so, so when we sing this, we are declaring that prophetic scripture is going to come true in us. We, like a bride waiting for a groom, are waiting for you, Jesus, because you are the bridegroom that is going to come and receive the church, your bride, into this divine, great, eternal celebration. And so this has real gospel picture implications. And so the Bible often refers to the church as the bride of Christ. And, and oftentimes, because I've been in the church a long time, and I've thought this too, and I've heard enough people say this, oftentimes believers, people who have um, been getting ready for a long time, get frustrated. Why do we get frustrated? Because Jesus hasn't come back yet. Right? And we look around and we pull up Facebook and we turn on Fox News or CNN, whatever political party you're with, right? And, um, and we get frustrated. What's Jesus waiting for, right? Why doesn't he just come back? And why doesn't he just fix all of this? And why, doesn't, why don't we just all go to heaven and, and, and forget about this? What is he waiting for? Well, because he is a, a good bridegroom. He's waiting for his bride to get ready. Listen to this. This is so, so good. He's waiting for his bride to get ready. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says this. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promises because the people were complaining. They were saying, how come he hasn't come back? How come he hasn't returned? He promised he would. How come he? Where is he? We're waiting. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promises, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He doesn't want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. He's waiting for his bride to get ready. So in this parable, the girls are waiting. They would have turned their lamps low to conserve the oil as they're waiting, but the groom was taking longer than anyone expected, and the night was wearing on. The girls were getting tired, and eventually, Scripture tells us that they fell asleep. 
Verse 6, at midnight they were roused by the shout. Look, the bridegroom is coming. And so there's this, this shout. The crier goes before him. The bridegroom is coming. Everybody, come out and let's meet him. Let's go. The celebration is getting ready to take place. Come on, take your places. Here we go. And again, another gospel picture in this is in Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 9. We're not going to read that, but if you want to write that down and look at it later and study how closely these images represent each other, because there is going to be a great loud voice and an invitation into the marriage supper of the Lamb. It is so good to see yourself in Scripture and what is coming and knowing that the bridegroom is coming back for us. That's good news, amen? And so there's this great shout. The bridegroom is coming. So these 10 women, they hop up. They're a little disoriented. You know, you've, you've probably been woken up at like midnight or 3 a.m. by your kids and you're disoriented. You don't know what's going on. You know what I'm talking about? I'll never forget a couple years ago. Uh, it's been several years now. Man, my kids are getting old. But uh, my oldest, man, he had a bad habit of coming in and saying something to me and just disappearing. And, and one night, I was dead asleep. It was like 3 a.m. He comes in. He, gets, he leans right over my side of the bed. He gets right in my face. We're like nose to nose. And he taps me on the head. He said, Daddy, I can't go to sleep. And then he gets up and he just walks out like a ninja, just disappears. It's one of those things that you get like scared awake, you know what I'm talking about? And uh, like I, I look around and I'm like, was that Abram? Was that a ghost? Like am I dreaming? And, and I go back downstairs and I kind of find him and I said, man, what are you doing? He said, I can't go to sleep. Well, I said, well, don't come in here and tap me on the head and then leave. I don't know what's going on, man. Like, What's your problem? But, but it, was, it was one of those things where... Um, they get aroused, they, they, get, they get scared awake, and they pop up, and, and they're caught a little off guard. They're like, oh no, I didn't mean to fall asleep. How long was I sleeping? This isn't good. Verse seven, all the bridesmaids got up and prepared their lamps. Then the five foolish ones asked the others, please give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. So they've all fallen asleep. They all pop up. Okay, here we go, here we go. They turn up the oil and they realize that they're almost out. They realize that they can't do what they have been chosen to do. They, they realize that, that their one job, their one duty, they're not able to do. And so they, they desperately go to these other women who, who have some excess oil and they say, ladies, we need some of your oil. Verse nine, but the others replied, we don't have enough for all of us. Go to a shop and buy some for yourselves. Because you see, their, their, their oil was getting low too, and so they needed all of their reserves to, to, to perform the duties that they were called to do. And, and so for these five foolish women, um, the fact that they weren't ready was an absolute disaster for them. They had one job. It wasn't a difficult one. They had to provide light. One job, and they weren't ready for it. But see, sometimes staying ready for the groom can be harder than you initially thought. Listen to me, if you're a believer in this place, sometimes staying ready for the groom can be harder than you initially thought. Their job was to stay ready, to provide light for the feast, and now they didn't have any oil. The other girls couldn't spare theirs. There was no borrowing oil because they wouldn't have had enough for their jobs either, so their only option was to go to a store in the middle of the night and buy more oil, which was a very, very difficult, near impossible thing. But again, I think that it's important to realize that God rarely asks us to do difficult things. He rarely asks us to do difficult things. But time and time and time again, 
the Holy Spirit and Scripture will compel us to do hard things. I wonder what hard thing the Holy Spirit is asking you to do in this season of your life right now. I think that if we all took a little bit of time to reflect and, and listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit and, and, and what he's leading us and how he's speaking to our hearts and, and sort of the, the, the life steps or the directions that he's asking us to take, I wonder what hard thing he's asking you to do in this season of your life. Not overly difficult, but extremely hard. It, it probably doesn't require a special skill. It probably doesn't mean that you need a, a special or unique talent. He's asking you to do hard things. He's asking you to do hard things because he wants to increase your measure of faith. He's asking you to do hard things because he wants to reveal his greatness to you. He's asking you to do hard things because he wants you to see and know how awesome he is. Verse 10. But while they were gone to buy oil, these five foolish bridesmaids, the bridegroom came. Then those who were ready, and I want you to see this, those who were ready, those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was locked. Later, when the other five bridesmaids returned, they stood outside calling, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. Verse 12, but he called back, believe me, I don't know you. They had their chance to get ready. They weren't ready. They came. The door was already shut, and they're pounding on the door. Let us in. We're ready now. Let us in. We're prepared now. Let us in. I know we're late, but we got things taken care of now. And the Lord of the, the celebration says, listen to me. I don't know you. You are not welcome here anymore. And then Jesus explains the parable, which isn't always the case, but, but he doesn't want them to miss the point. Verse 13, this is what Jesus says. So you too must keep watch. So you too must remain ready, for you do not know the day or the hour of my return. And I know that God may be speaking to your heart about something specific here this morning, but I believe that there's a lesson within this text for the church today. And I want you to see this. I want you to hear what Jesus is saying and I think it's important that, that we all grasp this together. And I don't want to upset anyone or weird anyone out or think, wow, Chris, you're, you're talking about the Lord's return on this guest day where you're bringing new people in. Maybe you should have chosen a different topic. Listen, I believe that there is a sense of urgency in the church today that we need to let people know that it is time for us to get ready. It's just time. It's time for us to quit playing games it's time for us to, to, to quit being lazy in our relationship with Jesus. It's time for us to prepare ourselves to get ready and stay ready. And I believe what Jesus is saying in this, this is what he's saying, it's very clear. He's saying, I'm coming back, so get ready. I believe he's also saying, I'm coming back, so stay ready. Stay ready. It isn't enough to get ready. We must actively stay ready. It's not a difficult thing, but it can be extremely hard because it seems that the universe, the entire universe, is actively fighting against this. Let me show you what I mean. I, I came across this article the other day. I want to share a portion of it uh, that I think will help explain what I mean. It was an article talking about thermodynamics. Pretty impressive, right? I'm reading articles about thermodynamics. And this is what it says. So the second law of thermodynamics states that the entropy of a closed system will never decrease. Raise your hand if you understand what that means. 
one of you. And me, of course. I obviously know what it means, right? Let me read that again. The second law of thermodynamics states that the entropy of a closed system will never decrease. I had no clue what that means, and so I I had to go on. And, And to understand this, we first have to understand what the word entropy means. Entropy means the gradual decline into disorder. So we could say it like this. The second law of thermodynamics states that the gradual decline into disorder of a closed system will never decrease. Some of you are still like, man, I'm not following. Let me say it a simpler way yet. Without effort, things will decay. Make sense? Without effort, things will decay. Some examples. If you build a sandcastle, you go to the beach, you build a sandcastle, it's nice, it's big, it's got the windows and the towers and everything, you go away for a couple days, even if nobody touches that sandcastle, you come back a couple days later, what happens to that sandcastle? It's eroded, right? And maybe it's not washed completely away, but it's, it's, it's eroded, it's not as sharp. Some of the little particles of sand have, have washed away or blown away. It's different. It is beginning to decay. It has begun to erode. That's the second law of thermodynamics. You plant a garden. You lay down some nice, green, perfect, beautiful sod. And the only thing you do to maintain that is water it and mow it. What's going to happen? Weeds are going to grow. Dandelions are going to come in. If you're not doing anything else to maintain that garden, it's going to be overrun with weeds. That's the second law of thermodynamics. Without effort, things will begin to decay. You marry that gorgeous man or, or that beautiful woman. And then never again do you put any work or effort into maintaining the strength or the health of that relationship. What's going to happen to that marriage? You're going to grow apart. It's going to decay. The relationship is going to erode. You're going to end in divorce. It's the second law of thermodynamics. Being real in your relationship. Listen, I I, I had this thought this this week, and and I, I want you to hear this. I do doesn't mean I'm done. I do doesn't mean I'm done. As a parent, sometimes you get fed up with your children's room. Anybody walk into your kid's room and you're just like, I am about to lose my mind. Anybody here? It's happened before, right? So, so you walk into your children's room and, and in a fit of parental rage, like you just can't take it anymore, you throw everything out of the room, right? All the toys, all the clothes, all the shoes, all the ball, everything you just throw out of the room. You're like, we are going to clean this room. And, and for the next two hours, you're angry cleaning. You know what I mean? This is how you fold. This is how the drawers are supposed to look like. This is where the books go. Come on, somebody. You know what I'm talking about, right? And after two hours, the room is spotless. You could take a picture of it, and it could go in a magazine. Then you look at your child in the eye, and you say, this is how I want this to look all the time. Has it happened to anybody except me? You come back two days later, and the second law of thermodynamics has proved itself in your children's room. It it just, it's decayed, it's eroded, it's terrible again. You're like, we'll let mom deal with it this time. And in your relationship with Jesus, listen, if you respond to the leading of the Holy Spirit in your life, you raise your hand to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You pray that prayer, and then from that point on, do absolutely nothing about it. 
You don't read scripture, you don't attend church, you don't pray, you don't give, you don't, you don't do the hard things of daily sacrificing your will, your ways, your wants, your desires for the things of Christ. Your relationship with God will turn into a self-serving, easy-believism, pagan religion that is di- designed to appease your sinful conscience and give you a false sense of security. It will decay. It will erode. And the result will be you missing out on an authentic relationship with Jesus Christ. The second law of thermodynamics in your life. Without effort, things will decay. Without effort, things will decay. In our relationship with God, it's easy to get ready, but hard to stay ready for us. And it's, and it's not hard for God. Uh, Jesus is the bridegroom. Jesus has done all of the work. He has prepared the way. He has sent the invitation. And all Jesus is doing is waiting for the church to get ready. But it seems like we go through these seasons and these phases where we're kind of ready and then we're not. And then we're, you know, we want to be a part of God's kingdom. And then we're like, ah, you know. Why is it so hard for us to stay ready? Why? Well, I, I, I had a few thoughts. I wonder if it's not, number one, because we get bored. Sometimes we get bored. I want to ask a question here that I think will probably reveal more about us than we care to know. But, but here's the question. How many of you have ever found yourself bored with God? How many of you have ever found yourself bored with God? I think that's something that we need to pay attention to. The, the, we think, man, with God, there's just nothing new. It's just the same old rules, the same old commandments, the, the same old thou shalt's and the thou shalt nots. And I'm just kind of over it. I'm just tired of it. You know, the whole God thing. I'm just, I'm just bored with it. The whole religion thing. And God, it's just kind of boring. And it's really quite embarrassing how easily we get bored with God. It is. It, you know, it amazes me in the Old Testament how quickly the Israelites got bored with God. Doesn't that frustrate you? How quickly the Israelites got bored with God. I mean, think about this. The the 10 plagues in Egypt were so awesome, were so impressive, were so amazing that that the stories, the, the mere mention of the 10 plagues, the stories of the 10 plagues going before the Israelites in in these surrounding nations, these other nations had heard, they hadn't even witnessed or seen, they had heard the stories of the ten plagues. And when the Israelites showed up, a lot of these nations would lay down their weapons and say, look, we don't want to fight you because we've heard about what happened in Egypt and we don't want that happening to us. So the stories were so amazing that it was causing entire nations to lay down their arms and say, look, we don't want to mess with you guys. Awesome, right? Like, that is awesome. And, and not even that. Think about, think about when the Israelites were, were freed from Egypt, and, and they go out, and they're standing in between the Red Sea, and they, they don't know where to go, and, and um, uh, they're looking to Moses, and Moses is saying, well, just trust God. And, and they look behind them, and, and Pharaoh is frustrated that he let them go, and the, the, the Egyptian army is coming to, to kill them and take some of them back as slaves, and they're like, oh, I don't know what to do now. And remember what God did? God sent a wall of fire, okay, God sends from heaven a wall of fire, slams down on the earth in between the Israelites and the Egyptians. Think about how awesome this is. Like you're there, you're freaking out, you're thinking, okay, we're going to die, and a wall of fire from heaven just separates. And as the Egyptians try to go around it, the wall just increases and it keeps moving. Like, wow, that's pretty cool, right? 
And then you look on this side, you're still, there's no escape room. And on this side, the, the, the sea, the Red Sea begins to part. It begins to stand up on its own two walls there. And a massive wind starts blowing and drying the land. And so all night, there's this great big wall of fire over here. And this, the, the water is standing up over here. And the wind is blowing to, to, to um, dry the ground so you can go through. Awesome, right? And you're like walking through the... The water, I mean, I'd be nervous, right? Putting your hand in the water. Is this okay, mom? You know, like, you know, like, is it weird? I touched something, ooh, it was gross, you know? I don't know. But how awesome would that be? I mean, this is their God. This is the God that they serve. The plagues, the fire, the, the, the walls of water as they're walking through. And then a couple weeks later, these same people are bored with God. Moses goes up on the mountain, gets the Ten Commandments, and, and they're down there. You know what? God is kind of boring. We're bored with him. We need something else. We need something different. We need something new. Make us a golden cow, and we're going to dance around this golden cow, and we're going to worship this golden cow because we're bored with God. How dumb is that, right? Come on, somebody. That's dumb, right? How embarrassing for them. How frustrating that is. How could you be bored with God? After you've seen all that, how could you be bored with God? But I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, I've not seen God do anything like that. You know, if I saw fire and plagues and you know, walking through Lake Hastings because God split it, you know, I don't know. I wouldn't be bored with God. But maybe, maybe you haven't seen anything like that. But there is a big difference between you and the Israelites and and. And here it is. The biggest difference between you and the Israelites is that for the Israelites, God dwelt near them. For the Israelites, God was close. For the Israelites, God dwelt in, in the tabernacle, right? So it would be like there, there is a special place in the town square where, where the presence of God dwelt. And, and so they were near God. The difference between the Israelites and you is that God dwelt near them for you, because Jesus came and established the way of salvation and then sent his Holy Spirit, God doesn't dwell near you. He dwells in you. And so you have the glory of God, not close, but in. That's a big difference. So how embarrassing for us when we say we're bored with God. But that's why we don't stay ready like we should. We think God just isn't as exciting as he used to be. He doesn't wow me anymore. I, I don't get the gospel goosebumps and the warm fuzzies like I used to. The truth is God isn't boring. You've just started dancing around a golden cow and you need to stop. Because once we begin to walk in faithful obedience and begin to do the hard things that Scripture and the Holy Spirit compel us to do, you are going to see God move in amazing, supernatural, in immediate ways in your life, in your marriage, in your home, in your job, in everything you do. You are going to see God move because the glory of God is dwelling in you anyways. Stay ready. It's not difficult, but it can be really hard. Number two, I think one of the reasons why we don't stay ready is because life gets tedious. Life gets tedious the strength of a relationship is not forged in the magical moments, but in the monotonous ones. The strength of a relationship is not formed in the magical moments, but the monotonous ones. There's a TV show that I hate. I hate, hate, hate it. Some of you may like it. I'll pray for you. But, but I hate it, right? Hate it. The Bachelor. 
bleh. I just, I hated that show. I don't know how many seasons it's in, but I hate that show. That, that, the Bachelor was going was when I was in college. That's the only season of The Bachelor that I've ever watched because The Bachelor was from Springfield. And I was like, hey, you know, it's the guy. I may run into him someday at Walmart or something. Never did. But, you know, just being local, you're like, hey, I got to watch this, right? And so it's just a terrible show. I hate the show. The fake feelings of love that are a result of the dream dates, the romantic, magical moments. The profession of love, uh, I could really see myself being with this girl, but, but let me go on and, and, and have sex with all these ten others first just to make sure. Isn't this so romantic, right? I can't for the life of me figure out why those relationships never last, right? Because the strength of a relationship is not forged, not forged in the magical moments but the monotonous ones. Listen, for those of you who are married, you know this. The strength of your marriage is not because your wedding day was amazing. The strength of your marriage is not because the wedding night was awesome, right? It was, it's funny, I was, Melissa and I were talking about this the other day, about our wedding night. We were there in the hotel, and we had a visitor that, that showed up about midnight in our wedding night, and um, it was a mouse, and he was eating the Doritos in our uh, Dorito bag right there, and we were sleeping, and, um, and Melissa wakes up, and she's like, Chris, I'm like, what? You know, and we're not used to like sleeping together, and so this is a weird thing anyways, and she's like, Chris, there's a mouse in the chips, and you know when you're sleeping and you know things, but you don't know you know them, and then you wake up and somebody tells you, you're like, I heard it too, you know? So I lean over and I peek in there, but it was dark and I couldn't see it. I'm like, ah. And so I pick up the chip bag and drop it real fast and nothing. I reach over, I pick up the chip bag a little higher and then drop it again, you know, being, I, I, I wanted to show Melissa that she was safe with me, like being well protected, like, you know, sort of thing. And I pick it up and I drop it a little higher and then we hear this around the chip bag and then Mighty Mouse, he flew, he jumped out of the bag, flew there, landed on the carpet and ran out of the room. And we're like, ah, you know, and Melissa made me call the front desk and said, there's a mouse in our room. And, and uh, so I, I did, you know, I, I, hey, I knew to do what I was told early on. And so I called and said, there's a mouse in our room. And, and Melissa said, she's hollering in the back and we are scared to death. And I said to her, and she is scared to death. You know, it's not, the, it's not the magical moments, it's the monotonous ones that forge a relationship. The strength of your marriage is forged in the thousands of meals that you have together. Amen? The strength of your marriage is, is forged in the hundreds of trips to the grocery store. It's in the telling and the retelling of the same stories over and over and over again and, and laughing at the same lame inside jokes that always make you laugh. The highlights are good, but the tedious is where real intimacy is found. Man, this is so good. The tedious, the monotonous, the same thing over and over again is where real intimacy is found. And too many times we think that reading the Bible is tedious. Listen, we think that praying is tedious. We think that church is tedious. And all we want is the magical, warm, fuzzy feelings. But that's not where we learn to hear the voice of God. It's not in those highlight moments where we discover the character of God. 
It's in daily spending time with him. It's in daily listening to him. It's in daily saying, you know what, God, you're asking me to do another hard thing today, but I'm gonna do it because the last time I did a hard thing because you asked me to do, you showed up in an amazing way. And the time before that, when I felt like you were asking me to do a hard thing, you showed up in an amazing way. And I'm beginning to learn, God, that you will never ask me to do something and then leave me high and dry, that when you speak to me, I can walk with confidence and obedience because every time you've spoken to me, Lord, it has taken me to a place of greater intimacy and a level of greater trust in you that I've ever known in all of my life. And God, I just want to know you more than I do today. So you ask me to do hard things and I'm going to do it because I trust you, God. And it's in the tedious, it's in the monotonous, it's in the every day spending that time with God. It's in listening to his voice. It's in strengthening those spiritual faith muscles and saying, yes, I'm scared, God. And yes, I don't think I can do this on my own. And yes, I'm afraid that if I do this, I will fail. But I trust you more than that, so I'm going to go ahead and do it. And you live like that, you'll never be bored with God. You'll never be bored with God. Engaging in the tedious parts of a relationship with God isn't overly difficult. It's not difficult, but it can be hard. It can be hard. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If you'd like to connect with us or if you want more information about North Shore Church, please visit mynsag.com.